Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guest, Dr. Beth Felker-Jones. Beth earned her doctorate at Duke University, and she presently serves as a professor of theology at Northern Seminary. She's previously taught at Wheaton College most recently. She's the author of many books. She's a prolific author, and in this conversation, we're going to get into several areas of her expertise, but some of her best-selling books include Faithful, A Theology of Sex, Practicing Christian Doctrine, Introduction to Thinking and Living Theologically. You're going to love this conversation, so I invite you to, to stay tuned. Hey, Beth, welcome. Hi, Brian. Glad to be with you. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, just to, to start the interview, kind of easy. Can you give uh, everybody some background on yourself? And you know what I mean as briefly as possible. Kind of give uh, trace out your spiritual journey that led you at this point to be a author and a professor of theology at Northern Seminary. As briefly as possible, yeah. Um, my uh, Christian story is one of those raised in a Christian home stories. Grew up Methodist. Um, uh, going to Methodist church camp. And uh, in college, I worked at Methodist church camp. It's, it's kind of a, a really basic story in, lo in lots of ways. Um, but in that process of you know, working with kids, teaching about Jesus, um, I experienced a sense of calling uh, of some kind. It was, it was vague to me at the time. Uh, I'm also a book nerd. I like to read. I like to write. I like to think about things. Um, and so uh, in seminary, I, I found my calling um, at the intersection of teaching about Jesus and being a book nerd. Um, and it's a great life if you can if you can get it. So I think that's pretty brief. What do you think? Yeah, I was, I was just curious. I mean, yeah, that was really brief. And so, uh, see, I, and I love that because, you, you know, like an introvert, so brief is easy for us introverts. We just li we leave it at that or whatever. But uh, what about like, um, was there like a moment when you fully sensed like your when, when your calling came to you that uh, really changed or like a, a dynamic experience that happened in college where you like really affirmed and they said like, uh, Beth, you know, you should go get a PhD. Was there any kind of moment like that for you or was it just a natural progression because you're just smart? Much and, more, yeah. much more gradual. And I yeah. think um, uh, I had some trouble embracing my calling. Um partly probably being a woman and I worried about how it would fit with um, my hopes at the time to, to marry and be a mother. And um, uh, so I think uh, if, if God was working on a moment, um, I might've been resisting it a little bit and it ended up being, being much more gradual. Um, but I, um, seminary was just clarifying in terms of sort of where my gifts and interests are. Um, and I am an introvert. And so uh, though I love my students and I can pretend to be an extrovert in the classroom, I think uh, it also became clear to me that the pastorate was perhaps not quite suited to my introverted nature. Um, yeah, so I don't have any magic moments, really. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, that's, that's, that's good. And, and I know you did your doctoral work at, at Duke. Did you go to seminary at Duke also for your, just your, your master's degree? I did. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, you've recently moved up to Northern Seminary. And, and I know previously, I don't, I know at least for sure that you've taught at Wheaton College for a season, then you, you're also at um, Huntington University before that. What's the differences that you've noticed if you have already between teaching undergrads versus teaching seminarians? Yeah, um, I primarily taught undergrads for 
16 years, um, though uh, for my whole time at Wheaton, I would teach the odd grad class. So um, it, it's not completely new to me, um, but uh, I really am enjoying the change uh, to adult uh, students. Um, I'll always love undergrads uh, and, and I still do, uh, but it's really a joy to work with folks um, who are bringing more experiences, a little bit more dedication, um, a little bit more, knowledge of how hard the world is uh, with them into the classroom. Uh, many of my students at Northern are, are pastoring or working in the church while they do their seminary education, and that's really enriching in the classroom uh, as well. So um, I've always wanted to teach theology in a way that is for the church. Um, uh, one can obviously do that for undergrads, uh, but uh, the, the connections are just more direct and immediate in seminary teaching, uh, and that's been a fun change. So. And what, and what about when you worked with all these uh, younger people, and again, I'm assuming that most of your students in the, at the Huntington and Wheaton were 22 and under with, with some yeah, exceptions. College age, yeah. mm -hmm. So what, what, what gives you kind of hope or what did you learn about the future or some of the challenges that emerging generations are, are bringing into the church, the kind of questions they're asking from, from working with undergrads for so many years? I definitely see both hope and challenges. Um, I think uh, across the board, my time in undergraduate teaching always made me hopeful for the future of the church um, in uh, the sincere faith and the desire to, to serve uh, that I always saw my students uh, bringing, um, as well as I think generationally a kind of fresh openness um, to expressions of Christianity, which maybe their parents might have been more closed to. Um, right? Openness to everything is not good, but there are things that it's good to be, to be open to. Um, I think right now, people who teach 20-somethings are um, feeling a generational shift. It's the end of um, what the millennials and, and we're mm -hmm. well now into Gen Z. And uh, uh, I love those uh, new students as well, but I, I do think there's some special concerns. Um, it seems there's a lot of cynicism. Uh, they've been through hard things. Um, uh, what they've experienced in uh, the U.S. politically uh, is often uh, very hard for them to sort through in light of their faith. Um, and I, I routinely talk to students who feel like their parents are kind of losing it. Uh, parents who they've admired as Christian as Christian mothers and fathers um, who seem to perhaps be shifting allegiance uh, from recognizable Christianity to something that's much more nationalistic. Um, uh, and uh, many students find that confusing and sad and, um, and uh, are sorting through how to deal with that. Um, I also think there's a lot of cynicism uh, in this new generation. Millennials were supposed to be hopeful um, and maybe the next generation isn't as much. Did I already say that cynicism? Uh, well, I think it's, I think it's, I'm going to follow up on that after, but you know, so obviously yeah. that's, that's obviously a critical uh, piece of our, our context right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, they are not sure the world will be around for their kids. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, they really, really, uh, are are worried about things like climate change and nationalism and polarization and 
Um, at the same time, they don't necessarily know how to break free of the, that kind of polarization and move forward in hope. So I think as the church, we need to keep figuring out how to build things um, in a time of worry now. Yeah, so let me, you know, I was funny, I was, um, one of my guilty pleasure theologians is Paul Tillich, which you don't almost ever hear anybody from Asbury say that, but one of my favorite books is The Courage. <laughs> is the, I, well, no, it's, it's my challenge. I like to read books that I feel like an idiot when I'm reading them, because I feel like I've read that book, I've read Courage to Be, I think, five times, and every time I read it, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm getting a little smarter, because I think I can understand a few more paragraphs in this book, but I, but what made me laugh, this, I just started it again two days ago, <laughs> you know, that whole book's about anxiety and stuff. And, um, and he just says, I mean, I, I think you read the book in like 1950s or something. It says, ours is the age of anxiety. And I was thinking like, dude, what would this guy say today if he was alive like 70 years later, if he thought, and again, obviously that was an anxious time, relatively speaking, right after World War II and stuff, but it's, uh, it's amazing. And so you mentioned cynicism and, and that's one response to anxiety is just to be uh, you know, cynical about things. And you also see this deconstruction um, it's like a buzzword now. And, um, and again, I didn't put this in the questions, but when you, the way you answered about the undergrads, I'm just curious. Um, I mean, at some level, people get stretched when they go to college, they get stretched when they immerse themselves in the faith. Um, how have you found cynical students? How do you help them to find footing so they don't get caught into this? Oh, let's do this cool thing and deconstruct our faith completely and then end up outside the church or whatever. Do you have any thoughts about that? And I mean, that's that could be the whole episode here. Hey, I, I do. I have lots of thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want first to be uh, empathetic uh, for those who see themselves as deconstructing. Um, often, what they are feeling like they need to take apart is not something that resembles classic historic Christianity anyway, and by all means, let's tear that down. Um, but I'm a huge believer uh, that classic historic Christianity is in itself constructive. Um, yeah. I think it's good. I think it's beautiful. And so my biggest strategy, <laughs> and you know, uh, may God help it to work in some ways, at least. Uh, my biggest strategy is to, to hope to present the truth and beauty of the gospel, um, to present the truth and beauty of what have Christians actually believed about creation through the centuries um, before we started arguing about six days versus millennia versus versus what have you, right? Um, and there's so much good there that um, I try to present it with unrelenting enthusiasm. And, and I think at least some students catch the, the energy for it, yeah. So I think theology is the answer, right? Theology is going to save the church. <laughs> That's good. And when you say theology, again, can you just kind of define that? And I think, I mean, uh, again, I haven't, I've seen a couple of your books. I've, you've read, written so much. I haven't read a lot, everything, but you root yourself. I think you, you, you know a lot about Augustine and you know a lot about when you think of theology. So where do you kind of root the center for that? And, and how do you, when you say theology is the answer, what does that mean? And what would be like starting point for people listening that say, Hey, I want to get a, a sense of the scope of the, um, of the theology of the church that's robust and heavy and weighty and not just, uh, you know, the, maybe the, sugar-coated version that we've been mm -hmm. fed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, the, I could also talk about what theology is for a really long time, but one of the things I mean right here is just flat out content. Um, what is the content of the Christian faith? What is it shaped like? Um, what do we affirm and not affirm uh, as we seek faithfulness to the word of, of God? 
And um, I think a lot of Christians in the pews have been deprived of that content. Uh, they, they want it, they're hungry for it, um, but they haven't really been given it. Um, I mean, the theology is more than that. And the content doesn't have only one shape because Christianity is contextual and cultural because God loves contexts and cultures and, and, and delights to adapt. Um, not that God adapts, but delights to, to make himself known, right, in, in our different contexts. Um, but it is recognizable always what, what that historic Christian faith is. Um, and I think for somebody like me who's had the privilege of studying it a bunch, um, what I'm able to do and then hopefully offer to students is see that shape, right? See what, what it looks like through the ages, um, uh, what uh, the kind of biggest picture consensus is uh, in the church uh, about what do we believe about creation. Uh, again, it's, it's never perfectly uniform, but I think it's absolutely recognizable. Um, I have a book, Practicing Christian Doctrine, um, uh, where I try to lay out that basic content uh, in a way that uh, is not particular only to one Christian tradition, uh, but which, uh, as best as I can discern, describes what most Christians believe um, and tries to show how it's beautiful. So. No, and that is, I have to say, that's a, a very good book. And I know that several of my colleagues at Asbury use that for our basic Christian doctrine uh, course as well. And, you know, that is the one book that I'm the most familiar with that you've actually done and just left that out to the, the listeners. Uh, Practicing Christian Doctrine is a, is a fine book by you. And let me ask you a couple questions about your writing practices before we kind of go back down into the theology. Because that's one of the things I'm most impressed about you, because you, you live a whole life. Uh, you're, you're active in a local church. You're a mother. I mean, obviously, you're a wife. Also, you have all these different roles. You've just been able to do a, a, a array of of books. You've, you've written all these kind of popular essays where you engage with popular culture. I think that was with what Christ, the Christian Century. I think you wrote for. Is that right? And then you have a, a whole bunch of books from a book on the Twilight series, which I think my daughters would have loved that at Once Upon a Time. And uh, um, obviously I've seen all those movies because I had girls and stuff too. Um, seen them, all those movies like three or four times, I have to say, because they were playing continuously there for a while. So you have a book like that. And then you have this recent book on pandemic prayers, and then you have your heavy theology books. Um, so how do you find um, time? Like, what are your writing habits that let you write as much as you do and live this full life, which is such a great witness for everybody. Oh, thank you. Um, well, like most writers, um, I don't think I write enough, uh, nor have I been able to write as much as, as I have wanted uh, to write. And I wish I were the kind of writer who works steadily every day. I'm always aspiring to something like that. Um, but the truth of the matter is my writing life has happened in fits and starts, um, rushing towards deadlines or taking advantage of an open summer or a sabbatical um, to to do some serious writing. Uh, I have uh, not uh, ever become a really uh, careful daily kind of writer. And I think that does have to do with uh, family commitments uh, and so on. Um, I think the biggest, most important part of life for me in terms of being able to manage my vocation, both uh, 
to the academy and, and I consider writing a part of that as well as my vocation uh, to my family. Uh, the biggest, most important thing is uh, that my husband is a real partner. Um, uh, we try to encourage each other in our work outside the home and he truly shares the work inside the home. Uh, and I don't know how anybody with kids does anything without without a real partner who who does real work um, uh, with and, and for the kids. Um, so for instance, um, my husband uh, even took uh, family leave from work for a few years uh, and was home with our kids full time while I was working to get tenure and promoted. Um, so uh, one of those kind of uh, higher amped times in, in, in my life, but it has seasons, right? Um, some seasons are are fuller of writing and, and some are, are less so. Um, and I am hopeful uh, that uh, as I'm entering into a season where my kids are older, um, that I'll have more time to devote to writing. Uh, and that's because I really see it as what I'm called to do. Um, uh, I think that uh, making decisions to prioritize what's most important um, lets people do what they're called to do. Uh, and so I try to say no to things that are outside of my sense of mission um, and, and yes to the things that are and, and get them done. Um, but it's never done as fast as I want and I'm always behind on every deadline and my children mock me mercilessly about that, right? So, <laughs> um, if one is to be married and a parent and a writer, um, uh, you need a real partner. No, I, I love that. And I 100% um, agree with that. I've, uh, I've written so many books over the, I've been, uh, been remarried for eight years and I produced more in <laughs> the last eight years than I did in uh, previous like 20 years. So it was just, I, I can just testify to the power of a partnership and it's a true blessing uh, for sure. So how do you also decide um, you've, I mean, you obviously have partnerships and, you, and you're able to find the time. So given your wide interest and, in, you know, I'm, I'm going to say brilliance, that's going to embarrass you, but you, you clearly have a fine mind. How do you decide what to write about when you actually have time to write? Yeah. Um, in some ways I've decided in a kind of ad hoc way, <laughs> um, as things have come up and I've weighed whether I want to take them on, uh, or not. So for instance, um, the book about vampires, right, about Twilight, um, uh, came from uh, a quick angry posting I did at a now defunct blog site, uh, which somebody saw and asked if I'd like to turn into a book. Um, and my first thought was, of course not. I can't write about vampires. No one will ever take me seriously again. And then my second thought was, um, if theology doesn't matter to teenage girls, why am I doing it? Um, and so I said, yes, right. I, I hadn't planned to do that, but I did it. Um, and, and there it was. Um, and, and some other projects that I've taken on have, I think, happened in a similar way. Um, I'm not the most disorganized person in the world, but I'm also not the kind of person to chart my career years in advance in terms of what I, what I think I'm going to do. And so uh, projects have emerged from um, senses of passion, senses of need. Um, uh, the big book I'm working on now about conversion, big, hopefully not too long, but big as in it's taking me forever, um, grew out of a sense of need uh, from the classroom and from the church, right? Uh, from questions I felt like were pressing uh, among my students and, and in the life of the local church. Um, it seemed like something I was being called to take on, and so I took it on. Um, perhaps more systematic thinking would, would be fruitful, but I don't know. Um, 
sometimes I think you have to go with it too. So, no. That's no, good. Well, I just appreciate the honesty and the answer. And uh, actually, I, I love the answer. It's good, especially the angry blog post turns into a book that just it's just really interesting how things happen sometimes. Uh, but that's, uh, again, um, that's, that's a great, uh, that's a great topic. And that just connects, like you said, teenage theology does matter to teenage girls also. And I think I appreciate that about your work that you you're accessible, you have some technical things, and then you have uh, stuff that people can read, including books on uh, prayers. That, that's your what's your latest book called? I saw it on Amazon. It's about prayers for the pandemic. Yeah, it's called right? pandemic prayers. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> um, and uh, the subtitle is perhaps devotions and prayers for a crisis. Um, it's just a, shed a set of short uh, devotional reflections uh, written in the first months of the pandemic. Um, uh, and I certainly didn't plan to write that uh, as we were all feeling, I think, pretty floored at the time. Um, part of my response to being floored was to, to write my prayer life in certain ways. Um, uh, and uh, it ended up being something that could be put together into, into this little book. So um, it's short, devotional, um, and hopefully accessible. Uh, I do really believe in clarity um, and accessibility, uh, theologies for all of us. So it's good. And, and everybody listening, if you want to check out any of Beth's books, I have links right to Amazon for all of her, all of her stuff that we'll mention. And even the books that we haven't mentioned, we'll put everything up there on the, in the show notes. And Thanks, when, Brian. Now, I know at your heart, you're a Wesleyan Arminian theologian. That's kind of your, your home base. Um, when you think about Wesleyan Arminian theology and just all the issues that kind of confront us today, you know, let alone, I know you're involved in the United Methodist Church, some too, and obviously there's some real issues in the United Methodist Church. But uh, when you think about Rough like- times for us all, yeah. yeah. When you think about the current state, what's, what's your sense of where Wesleyan Arminian theology is, maybe where it's perhaps perfect for the moment that we find ourselves in? Or what would you say some of the maybe holes or some places where we need to think a little bit more deeply about? Yeah, um, I am a very committed Wesleyan um, in terms of my theological commitments. And that's because I find them, I find the shape of Wesleyanism uh, the most persuasive and synthetic account of the biblical witness that I've seen, right? I, I think it does a really good job of, of picking up the main points and making the main points and holding those points together uh, in a coherent way. Um, uh, in some ways, my work as a Wesleyan theologian has been shaped by the fact that I have not taught in an explicitly Wesleyan context. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've, I've often been uh, kind of minority voice. Um, uh, I've often had suspicions from students who um, come from other perhaps more reformed uh, uh, type contexts. Um, and so I think partly I've developed um, as a Wesleyan uh, apologist in, the, in certain ways, um, trying to make it clear uh, to the broader Christian tradition how and why Wesleyanism fits with that, that tradition. Um, and it does. It's Wesleyanism is not weird and aberrant, right? I mean, it has its distinctives, but um, at the same time, I felt a calling uh, to remind fellow Wesleyans of what we share with that broader Christian tradition. I think sometimes we Wesleyans get a little hung up on our distinctives um, and forget that um, first and foremost, we're basically Christians right, who affirm basically Christian things, uh, and uh, the distinctives are beautiful, uh, but uh, they're not the first and, and main point. So I've, I've sort of found myself in this back and forth of uh, trying to explain Wesleyanism as, as basically Christian to other Christians, and trying to remind Wesleyans themselves that we're basically Christian and not only 
um, this sort of niche people. I think Wesleyan theology has suffered from the fact that we do as Wesleyans often kind of gather into our own group um, and not talk as much uh, in wider uh, contexts. Um, and that means people who aren't Wesleyans don't read as many Wesleyans as they might. Um, it means sometimes uh, Wesleyans are not in conversations that uh, many other folks from other Christian traditions are in. Um, so I have a kind of ecumenical heart as a Wesleyan, I think, um, uh, though uh, there's no Wesleyan distinctive that I don't love. <laughs> so uh, that's the case as well. Yeah. Could you give a, just a couple of examples of some conversations that you don't see us Wesleyan Arminians having that other traditions have? Yeah, um, maybe even not that we don't have them, but we don't enter into uh, the intertraditional, intertraditional inter conversation mm -hmm. in a way that we might bring our own salt and light. So I'm thinking of conversations about gender, right? Mm -hmm. um, of course, Wesleyans talk about gender, but certain matters um, about that are settled within Wesleyanism, right? We affirm women's ordination. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we're not arguing about that, I hope. Um, and uh, that means that we don't always enter into conversations where that is not settled um, and where it is being talked about in categories that I think m many Wesleyans, many of us would find foreign and even strange. Um, perhaps our ability to point out the foreign and strangeness might, might be helpful to the larger conversation. That's one example. That's good. Yeah, and I guess I'm gonna follow up just since you mentioned the gender question, I wanted to ask you specifically, like what do you make as a United Methodist? And again, and, and also you model in your own marriage, a really egalitarian message or um, um, marriage where you both value and share and support each other. So what do you make of the public struggle um, in, in, with, and you see like several reformed or Baptist, uh, female scholars been very public, um, yep. Yep. Uh, like Beth Allison Barr, I had her on the podcast and obviously she's on Twitter and she, she, catch, she catches a serious flack, um, from different groups. Like, what do you make of that having grown up say in the Methodist church where, yeah, there's certain conferences where if you're female, you may, you're going to find some resistance. I mean, we're yeah. not going to pretend like the Methodists got it all fixed because I know plenty of women that have a hard time with certain appointments oh, or whatever. Yeah. But at least publicly and in the books, that's supposed to be a dead issue at some level. So what do you make of the struggle in the wider evangelical world? And how do you step into that since you're actually in these, essentially teaching in these settings because you're not in a Western Armenian institution? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I, I've experienced, so I think I can answer that question uh, by narrating how I've experienced that conversation. Um, it's not one I had ever heard of in my life, at least not the details of it before I started teaching in non-Wesleyan institutions. <laughs> um, and, uh, I thus found it surprising, uh, kind of intriguing and puzzling. And the more and more I learned about how intense that conversation is and how seriously it's taken, um, the more and more I found it troubling and, and hurtful, um, as, as well. Um, so I have tried sometimes uh, to point out that the categories are not universal categories, um, that the categories are not biblical categories, right? The words complementarian and egalitarian, right? Are, are recent words used in a small subset of the tradition uh, and neither perfectly describes the biblical witness to gender for sure. So um, I, I think that outsiderness has helped. Um, 
me be able to, to talk in that way, perhaps in a special way. Um, it also, I think for me personally, um, has insulated me from some of the um, hesitance about my calling, um, some of the uh, guilt and shame that some women feel who have callings when they come out of traditions where that's more, um, more contested. Um, and so I think that's given me a kind of, um, bubble of encouragement uh, to sort of move in, even as I've navigated uh, debates that I find really deeply troubling, um, and which I've seen hurt my students, hurt so many people uh, in, in so many uh, ways. Um, I think the portion of the church that's talked most about egalitarianism versus complementarianism seems to perhaps be at a kind of reckoning point. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and the conversation around bars work and so on is maybe a, a sign of that. Um, and it will be curious to see what's next. Um, I think the flourishing of women is inherent to the gospel. Um, and I hope to see that recognized more and more. Um, but Satan brings his attacks against such as 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 well. Um, all right. Well, th well th thank you. I don't know if I answered all the parts of your question there, but well, I mean, it could have been. That's like almost like a can of worms question. I was just curious how you articulate that, yeah. and I <laughs> and I, I appreciate the way you answered it. Now, uh, let uh, me name really quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. PSA uh, at Northern Seminary, though it's not a Wesleyan institution, it's a clear, it's an institution which clearly supports the vocations and callings of women. And I'm really happy to be in a context uh, like that. And I see how it helps women to flourish. So, yeah. and, and, you know, and honestly, just you, you being a, a theologian, that's, that's a great witness, uh, just as a, as a female period, because a lot of times the women in the past have been like the education professors or whatever, you know, all the kind of cliches in the past, so you're actually kind of embody it by the very discipline that you uh, teach the without even having to say anything, which I think is a really powerful witness there too. Um, what, what about, um, my, my favorite part of Wesleyanism is entire sanctification, Christian perfection. And this isn't a shibboleth question at all. It's like, I'm always trying to, I'm always trying to find smart people. And in fact, I started this whole podcast to hear looking for somebody that can articulate that doctrine in a way that makes sense in the 21st century without just going back and like, hey, what's Christian perfection? Then I'm going to quote John Wesley. I mean, you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and your neighbor as yourself. And I'm like, well, I already knew that. So how do, <laughs> what, what does that really mean? And how do you articulate? Do you have any ideas or find language that you find is helpful or resonate? And by the way, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody else for the way they answer it, but I'm sure. like, what, what's language that you find really helpful and robust? Or is that like a doctrine that maybe uh, maybe made more sense in the 18th century than in the 21st century. Yeah, uh, it's my favorite part of Wesleyanism too. And I think it's our most distinctive distinctive <laughs> as, as Wesleyans. Um, uh, I think uh, that means that we should probably admit that it's rather strange, uh, yeah, admit, yeah. admit that uh, it is not the way most of the church has talked about things. Um, and that perhaps then that strangeness is part of why we as Wesleyans exist um, to uh, highlight uh, the sanctifying grace, which is testified to in, in scripture. Um, I think my favorite way of thinking about it um, is I think a phrase from Albert Outler, I'm almost sure, um, uh, the optimism of grace. Mm, Does that sound like yeah. Outler to you? Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah. Uh, we'd have to look that up to, to double check, but uh, 
optimism of grace. Uh, grace can do big things, right? Um, uh, it's not about us and what we can do, um, but it's about how God uh, can and wants to transform us and the world uh, for the sake of the world, which, which God loves. Um, that's an optimism I need in my life for sure. Um, and one that's rooted in the right place in, in Jesus. Oh. Yeah, and that's a powerful. I mean, you started off talking about how much cynicism comes up, and and in fact, that's the 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 Christian perfection thing. Is I just find that uh, to be so hopeful, like you said, the optimism of grace, mm -hmm. and what a great message that is for our for our world today. Um, have you done any reading? And this is going to put you on the spot. And um, I'm always curious. Um, like I always wonder what how Wesley would talk about entire sanctification today, and even the whole idea of infirmities and that optimism in light of what we know from, say, psychotherapy, Jung, Freud, or even any of the modern psychological pieces where you get more interest on kind of our unconscious. And if you don't haven't thought about that, we can just pat, move right along. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that. I haven't thought about it deeply, but I do think you know that the idea of the therapeutic, right? Uh, Jesus as healer um, is a pretty central image for Wesley. And in as much as we may be rethinking what healing looks like um, in the contemporary era, um, in light of things like paying attention to trauma and in light of things like how interesting our brains are, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, I think I think John would find that interesting too, right? Um, uh, if something is true healing, then it probably tells us something about how Jesus works as well. Um, that's probably all I have there, but um, no, that's, that's okay. That's that's kind of my little thinking pet, more little, about for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's my little pet project. Thinking about how do you bring in spiritual formation, holiness, uh, trauma, PTSD, anxiety, mm -hmm. all these things that you get you, that shame, guilt. You said some of those words yourself in a way that connects the Wesleyan optimism of grace with that. So that, that's kind of my little pet project that uh, who knows at some point, maybe I'll write something, but that's uh, always, I'm always, I'm, I'm hoping somebody else can figure that out for me there. Cause that seems like an, uh, I struggle reading Tillich, let alone try to read some of this, uh, this depth psychology stuff or that some of the people get down on the weeds on some of those things, but it's, it's really fascinating. I just appreciate, um, you know, your work and willing to engage that a little bit. Um, uh, you also, you're active on Twitter. I don't, yeah, I think you're on Instagram too. I don't, I, and I see you're mostly your stuff on Twitter. So I know you, you're active and you all, since you're, I don't know if you just post and get off or how much you interact with people, but you kind of see what happens on Twitter and it's not the prettiest place. And that's not even talking about the Christian version of Twitter, not, not just the political stuff, but what, what advice do you have for theologians or pastors, or maybe it's even your own best practices about how to use social media in a way that actually maybe brings people together or puts out kind of positive messages versus just, you know, kind of stating the obvious and, you know, trolling somebody or, you know, just holding up the worst possible example and ripping it to pieces or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am fairly active online, um, Twitter, Facebook. Um, I do have Instagram, but it's mostly just pictures of my dog, um, <laughs> <laughs> who I love. Um, I don't think there's a right way to sort of how to think through social media and ministry. Um, I know people who stay off it entirely and I respect that. Um, I find it fun to be in touch with people I wouldn't be in touch with otherwise and to learn about what people are thinking that I might not have known about otherwise. Uh, I think even in my own United Methodist Church, it's, it's fascinating to me how little people in different segments of that church even know the other segments exist, right? Yeah, um, 
there are, are progressives who think the whole church is progressive and evangelicals who think the whole church is evangelical and everything in between. And, you know, I, I love the idea that we might be able to actually talk to each other and listen to each other. Um, not that that always works out so well. So I try to approach uh, social media from a position of um, appropriate vulnerability, um, uh, you know, kind of joking about things in my personal life sometimes um, or questions I might have, um, but also with my bigger sense of mission in mind, which is that theology is good for the world um, and that uh, talking about that can be comforting and helpful to people in, in different ways. Um, so I had a fun conversation with a woman from church in the bathroom on Sunday. Um, she said, I always read your posts on Facebook. I would never comment, but I just think it's so interesting to see what people talk to you about. And, you know, sometimes I have other friends who are theologians, we might talk on Facebook. So, um, uh, you know, it can be fun as a window into places that we wouldn't otherwise have windows into. Um, you know, don't be mean. Um, uh, don't try to explain people's professions to them. Uh, and, uh, it definitely all has to be taken with a grain of salt. I think, uh, if you find yourself agonizing over what someone said to you online, maybe time to get a little space. Wow. No, that that's actually good. That's what I do. And I, when I, if I ever get any negative comments, which I do from time to time, I just always, write, I just always write, thank you. <laughs> Or, or, or good luck or whatever and uh just leave it at that because it's like just end it because I, I never i never try to put anything i actually i try to never put anything negative up online because it can just be misread so easily um and i, I find that even in emails so i just i appreciate the, your public face and i don't use facebook so i think it's cool so you actually post longer blog posts and stuff on facebook is that what you Oh, I often double post something on Twitter and Facebook. So if I do a Twitter thread, I might post it as a single post on gotcha. Facebook. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll try to find, I'll try to put links to that if people want to connect with you on there, because I think that would be a great way to engage with some of your work too. Well, I always welcome said connections. No, that's not that's good. That's what I like to have got to make a lot of friends on social media. Um, you know, I don't think I've made any enemies on social media. So I've mostly made friends. I do appreciate the fact that you can meet, like you said, lots of people from different uh, different groups and hear things if, if you're open to moving outside of your own silo, of course, which I mean, you you obviously are. So that's good. Um, let me just ask you a final, a couple of, I think, shorter answers, and then we'll, we'll wrap up the conversation. Again, super grateful for, for taking time to talk with uh, me and everybody listening here today. Um, so like, what would be next for you? And you've written so much and you said you don't really necessarily have an agenda. So maybe you can't answer this question, but is there like a book deep inside of you? I like to ask this question to see what people say that you're kind of afraid to write. I don't mean like you're shaking in your boots that, but that would make you nervous that you'd feel like you have to really step up to step up into some a higher level to be able to write it. Yeah. So I have several ideas brewing, uh, but I'm not letting them, uh, come to full shape even in my mind because I'm trying to finish a couple of things. Yeah. Uh, I'm finishing a short book called Why I'm Protestant uh, oh. for University Press um, and that should be out soon. And then I need to finish this conversion book which I have been working on for a long time. Uh, but I name that because um, it is, I think the book I'm afraid to write. Um, and the reason I've been working on it in many ways uh, for such a long time is that. Um, and I think that Though dragging it out for a long time has been uh, exhausting and frustrating for me. Um, I think when I finally get it done, it will be a better book um, because I've learned things about how God works in life over that, that period of, of time. Um, 
so maybe I'll leave it to the book itself um, for folks to learn why I might be afraid to write it, but um, I, I'm going to venture to say some things about God um, that I think are very Wesleyan and maybe a little contentious. So what's the, is the title conversion? Do you actually have a tentative title uh, for Converting love is the oh, title yeah, uh, and the subtitle yeah. might be conversion theology and consent. We'll see. I love yeah. that converting love. That's uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. I love the title. So hopefully they'll, I mean, I guess it's, it's an academic book. You probably have more control than if it was a popular book where they might I not like so, the yeah. title. So academics, they don't usually, they don't usually mess with your titles too much. So hopefully it will be called converting love. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, who's, who will be publishing that when it comes available? Do you, do you have a contract and stuff? Oxford already? University Press. Oh, wow. Time. Good for you. Yeah, that's gonna be great. Um, well, what does a, a typical day look like for you? And again, I'm not asking you to be super transparent or you can be as transparent as you want to be, but like, do you have like practices that um, kind of fuel you more or less? Maybe it's not every day, but do you have like a rule of life that you don't mind sharing that allow you to show up, be your best self for your family, for your students, and even in your writing and stuff? I'm always seeking such a rule of life. Um, and uh, My day-to-day -day life has changed a lot since the pandemic. I work at home a lot more, um, uh, which I really think now that it's not forced um, uh, is good for me in terms of flourishing in lots of ways. It just provides uh, space um, to, to organize things and to let work kind of bubble next to perhaps laundry and, and so on. Um, uh, so I don't know that I'm so good at daily practices, but I can certainly name practices which sustain me. Um, and those include being really intentional about meeting with friends, um, um, uh, particularly like couple friends that my husband and I have who are uh, not just fun to be with, but supporters in the life of faith, right? Um, prayer, I need prayer more all the time. I do do that daily. Um, uh, I have long, uh, prayed often through hymns, um, and I do a fair amount of hymn singing as I go around the house, much to my children's annoyance. Um, uh, I find hymns very sustaining. Uh, I hope to receive uh, the Eucharist as often as I can, uh, though it is not always very often. Uh, I do find that also uh, sustaining. Um, and having an ongoing text thread uh, with a small group of Christian friends mm -hmm. with whom I can complain or laugh uh, or ask for prayer um, uh, is kind of a new-ish uh, practically daily practice in, in my life. Oh. Um, yeah, um, maybe also just name, uh, I try to be very intentional about boundaries around work um, so that there is time that's that's not work time, that's family time. Um, and I try to be intentional about just doing some things that relax me, um, which are not very exciting. Reading novels, little Netflix, friends again, yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds relaxing to a, a fellow introvert. So I, I totally get it. It's like, I, I just, I could just read. I just like, when I think I'm really tired, I want to get away. I'm like, I just want to go read. And, you know, I like to go read on the beach since I live in Florida, but that's pretty much, I don't even like to get in the water, just go sit and read. Sounds <laughs> perfect so, to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so good. Now, now here's the, here's the hardest question I'm going to ask you for somebody that loves to read. So if you're, if you can only pick two or three books outside of the Bible that uh, have really kind of personally shaped you, um, what what would those two or three books be if you can only, if you had to boil it down to just a couple? Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, for theology, um, Augustine's Confessions, mm. Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love, and I think right now Willie Jennings' The Christian Imagination. Um, mm. There are, of course, many more, but um, but those are, are three that are important. Um, I also really love fiction um, uh, and uh, find my imaginative life uh, sustained by such in, in lots of, of ways. Um, so I try to read both bad and good fiction regularly um, and uh, beauty of writing there is one of the things that matters. Um, oh dear, sorry about that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Let me just ask you a question because it's like I'm I'm a in this maybe this is just even for me at this point I, I I'm a terrible fiction reader I you know I'll make myself read a novel once a year just because I know I should so when you it's pick men say it seems to me <laughs> it, it might be because it's, it's like. But yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, who knows? It's just I always laugh because I know I, I'm always happy when I read a novel, but I just don't read enough of them. So, mm -hmm. like, when you say you, when how do you go about picking? Because you said, you know, I've read Dan Brown stuff, and that'd be like just a completely popular level thing. And then I've obviously, I, I mean, I love Ernest Hemingway, which I guess that's definitely a man's writer, I suppose, at some level. Or like John, you know, John Steinbeck, um, read some Paolo. Let's see, Coelho. That's a more modern writer over some of his books and stuff. So, like, how do you go about picking a a novel i mean do you just pick them up if you're it's like a modern one do you go modern do you go classics like what are some of your tips for people that may want to try to read more fiction this is really nerdy of me but um i actually enjoy going looking for uh what oh, to okay. read like at the library um, or something uh, or well no uh so i online usually i pay yeah. attention to a few what to read podcasts i look at the lists of nominees for the national book award or the uh, man Booker Prize, um, uh, and uh, some of those podcasts uh, focus more on things that are not so highbrow as well, so that helps with diversity uh, in selection. Um, uh, I'm on Goodreads, and mm -hmm. I like to see what my friends are reading. You're welcome to friend me there and see what I'm reading, um, and so that's a fun place to, to find reads as well, and um, I try to be intentional about diversity, uh, so um, uh, while of course I read things by men uh, and by white people, uh, I try to make sure that not everything fits fits those categories, and so that can make the hunting for what to read next fun too. But I mean, ultimately, my practice is a little bit ad hoc here too. I don't have a planned reading list for next year. Um, I have a kind of mess of hundreds of books I want to read, and um, uh, what comes next could depend on on a lot of factors. So. Are you a person that reads one book at a time or do you have three or four books going or maybe even more going at the same time? And I don't mean your scholarly stuff because obviously you got an array of things, but when you're reading, do you read multiple books or do you just do one at a time usually? I often have several different styles. So I might have one piece of kind of book candy, um, something heavier um, and a piece of nonfiction um, going at the same time, uh, as well as theology uh, sort of on a different table. So um, uh, I do read multiple books okay. at, the, at the same time. Well, that was just fascinating. Thanks for those couple extra answers there. I, I appreciate <laughs> that. That was fun. So uh, this last question, where can, uh, if people want to reach out to you or, um, or at least connect with you somehow, what are some of the best places for people to find you online? Yeah, I'm really easy to find because uh, on all the social media outlets that I'm on, I'm Beth Felker Jones, just my full name. Um, and uh, you can also find me on Northern Seminary's website, uh, as well as information about the programs we offer there, uh, which I'm really excited about. 
Um, but yeah, a quick a quick Google of me will will link you to my Twitter or Facebook if you want to connect that way. And I'll, I'll gather up some of these links if you're interested in connecting with uh, with Beth and do check out her books. And uh, Beth, I just want to thank you so much for your time. I'm grateful. I've got to meet you in person uh, through through Asbury, uh, and and just appreciate your mind. You, appreciate your commitment to writing, teaching, and ultimately teaching the Christian faith. So thank you for answering God's call and being the person that you are. Thanks, Brian. It's really fun talking to you. Thanks for caring about my work and um, fun to connect with your listeners. Oh. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. And especially appreciate those who've made it all the way to the end. And until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be voices of hope to others. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you please share it with friends through your social media networks, as well as leaving a review to help other people find it. If you're interested in any of the resources mentioned, please check out the show notes. And let me again remind you, if you're interested in contemplative practices, my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence, Can Change Your Life, is now available in paperback or on Kindle. Recommend ordering it off of Amazon. If you want to do a large order, I would reach out directly to Paraclete Press Ask for Sister Estelle, and you can get some deep discounts if you're interested in buying, say, any quantity over of at least three or more copies. You can get good discounts directly from Paraclete. Thank you so much for the privilege of serving you, and we'll see you next time.